wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on A Quirky Journey. Today, I'm podcasting without my best friend and co-host, Joe Witten, as she has had to undergo surgery and is now taking it slow in order to recover and to come back to us better than ever. It's been an emotional time for Joe, her family, and for me, too. I'm not used to seeing Joe unwell, and the sudden nature of this event means that we're still emotionally processing seeing a loved one go into a hospital. We are really thankful for modern medicine as it has played its part perfectly, interfering, interfering only when it needed to. And now, Joe's allowing her body's natural healing abilities to kick in. Joe will be back before you know it and with more energy than ever. She tells me, uh, God help you when I'm bouncing off the walls again. Well, Joe, I can't wait. Here's to your quick recovery. Things haven't been nearly as fun without you to share them with. So to continue with this theme of allowing the body to heal, I thought I would share something I wrote for the Quirky Cooking newsletter recently. This is um, entitled Sick of Trying to be Healthy. And um, I wrote that uh, a couple of weeks ago and sent it out to our 44,000 subscribers. And we had a deluge of feedback from people. And it's been really amazing to hear from everybody how it resonated with them. And I thought it would be really good to share it with the podcast listeners as well. So I hope you enjoy it. It goes like this. It's the beginning of 2018 and so many of us are getting messages in our social media feed or our newsletter subscriptions about how to make 2018 a healthy year. There's a big emphasis on using the new year to create momentum on the health journey. Setting goals like cleaning up our diet, exercising more rigorously, holding ourselves accountable, etc. You know the drill. It's like a déjà year, right? For most of our lives, we've individually been dealing with sickness in some form or another. For me, it's been weight issues, severe acne, severe eczema, allergies, body pain. Jo has had her own issues. She struggled for many years with being underweight had many food intolerances, and is still working through hormonal issues in addition to the health problems her family has had to work through. As I reflect over the past few years on where Joe and I have seen the greatest improvements in our health, on the many realizations we've had on this journey, I look at our community as it embarks on a renewed journey. I feel that I would like to share an insight with you. I see so many of you online or at seminars who are confused as to where to start on your health journey. Many of us are pressured to prioritize health because the message we are given is how can we be of service to others if we are not the best version of ourselves? There is truth to this message, but I'd like to challenge the conventional view because I feel the pressure is overwhelming for those of us who are unwell. There's a lot of expectation to live up to, and that creates a feeling of unease, and a lot of self-judgment may arise when the inevitable failure to comply with our plan comes in. My advice on this topic comes from my own journey, not from things that I've read from the latest science or the latest motivational meme that is circulating on social media. So I will share with you my answer to the question of where do I start on my health journey? My health journey begins anew every day I wake up. It begins with a heartfelt knowing that today I can do something that will allow my body to be a little bit happier, a little bit more looked after. There's a knowing that with these small steps I take today, 
I tap into the body's capacity to heal and that today I can only do what I can do today. Whatever my knowledge allows, whatever my pain levels allow, whatever my energy allows, I begin not by judging all the seemingly negative situations that got me here, but by acknowledging that today here I am with a body that is receptive to healing. I do not compare myself as tired or sick as I feel to an image of an ideal body, to how much better I used to be or feel, or how others may be healthier than me. I accept myself today. And today, I move from this acceptance with love and compassion for my body, and I nourish it from acceptance also. When I go to sleep tonight, I do not look back at all the things I could have done better, feeling like I failed to do what's best. Instead, I am grateful that I am aware of where I am and that I'm taking steps to heal. And tomorrow, the journey begins again by accepting, loving, and nurturing this body as it is. I eat to nourish. I move my body with kindness. I rest without resentment for that much-needed downtime. I take time out when possible. I soak up the sun and breathe fresh air if I can manage it. As sick as the body may be, when I live my life in this way, I call this a healthy life. And this is my invitation to you. Shift your goals towards kindness for this body and mind and see how you feel then. No matter how overwhelming your situation, today is a new day. And there is always a simple step you can take towards kindness, even if it's not the perfect step that will fix everything. Before we move on to the podcast, a reminder that if you would like to support the show, you can do so by purchasing our latest cookbook, Life-Changing Food, which is available at quirkycooking.com.au. This is a beautiful cookbook. We have hit bestseller numbers with it. We've sold around 20,000 copies, so we've reached around 80,000 people if you average it out by four people per family. So we're very grateful that we've been able to reach so many of you and to help you on this journey. So if you haven't gotten the book yet, be encouraged that it's going to actually help your life. And uh, it would be a fantastic way to support us. We also have a good number of ethical products, such as your our organic fair trade quirky and loving it aprons, living synergy nut milk bags, and healthy solid techniques cookware. Um, solid techniques are incredible. You've heard us talk about them on the show before. This is non-toxic cookware that has a multi-generational warranty. It seasons just like cast iron, so it becomes non-stick, but it's far, far lighter than cast iron. So you can actually use one hand to saute. Um, you can get 10% off your Solid Technics products from our website if you use the coupon code 10QCP. Your support is much appreciated and it allows us to continue with our work spreading our shared message. Today's guest is the most famous farmer in the world, Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms in Virginia, USA. Joel is considered a revolutionary in the agricultural world as he brings attention to the ability of animals to regenerate damaged land. Joel's focus is on using nature to heal nature and his farming practices produce large yields of food which Yes, surprisingly, has a net positive gain for the ecology. This completely obliterates the commonly held view that farming, and in particular animal farming, is damaging for the environment. He is the author of 13 books, including Folks, This Ain't Normal. Check him out 
Google Polyface Farms or check out the links in the show notes. Joel is a personal hero of mine. I was quite nervous to interview him, but the interview was absolutely incredible. Uh, one of my favorite interviews of all time. I really, really hope you listen to it to the end. Uh, Joel is a deeply intellectual, deeply spiritual human being, and he is a beacon for light and sanity in this world that we are all trying to heal. We'll move on to the show now with Joel Salatin, and thank you for listening. Uh, Joel Salatin, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a delight and an honor to be with you. Um, Joel, I came across your work in Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and uh, later I heard your Google talk, uh, Folks, This Ain't Normal, which is also the title of your book. Um, I was investigating the role of animal farming in ecological sustainability and renewal, and you really enlightened me on the topic because of the clarity and, and the work that you do. And um, also I came across the work of Alan Savory, who was using grazing animals to reverse deserts around the world. Um, but farming in the mainstream view now is considered as one of the largest polluters on the planet. And the farming of ruminant animals is said to be depleting the topsoil because hooves are compressing the soil and things like that. And that causes runoff. And of course, there's the methane production issue. And um, your farming practices completely negate this perspective. And I would love you to share with our listeners what you do at Polyface Farm in Virginia. Sure. Well, <laughs> uh, you know that's a that's a tall question, but let's let's take it. Uh, let's, yeah, how do how do you eat an elephant you know, one bite at that's a time? Right, that's right. So we'll we'll just start taking bites of this. So so the first thing to realize is that uh, there were actually more more pounds of animals on the planet 500 years ago than there are today. I mean that that's just a good. Thing to un to appreciate and understand, and of course Australia had you know we now know they had they had all sorts of you know uh, megafauna. Uh, there were uh, nine foot wombats. You know how would you like to run into a nine foot <laughs> wombat? So, uh, so so the so the point is that if animals if animals you know uh, create climate change, um, then then we. We should we should not even be here by now, because for many many years uh, there were way more pounds of animals on the planet, you know, than there are today. So, so let so so um, so how how do we how do we have animals uh, that are actually you know environmentally helpful? Um, and that's the question because that's what historically uh, that's the way animals were. They were they're helpful. And um, and what we see there is that animals move. They don't stay in the same place, and they certainly aren't cooped up in buildings. Uh, they they move across the landscape in a in a some sort of a migratory choreography. And what that does is it allows the the forages to rest before uh, the animals come back. The animals can be pushed by. You know, by rains, by seasons, by predators, by fire, by any number of things. But the point is that the movement, the migratory choreography, enables the plants to rest long enough to go through their physiological expression cycle, i.e., uh, uh, plants <clears throat> grow in a, in a sigmoid curve. It looks like an S. 
So you know, it starts slow and then it goes real fast, then it then it slows down again at, at the when senescence kicks in. And so this 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 uh, this migratory pattern allows the plants to be pruned back to the beginning of the S, if you will, and then allows the plant to go through that that rapid juvenile growth curve uh, before the animals return. The problem is that most of most of animal agriculture does not practice this kind of very uh, pulsed and systematic pruning rest pruning rest cycle. The animals are just on a given area all the time, and they keep the the grasses, the forages, the plants very very short, so they never are allowed to go through their very rapid their very rapid biomass accumulation cycle. And the result of that is that, of course, the pasture gets much, um, uh, you know, much weaker and the plants don't grow as much so they don't sequester, <coughs> excuse me, they don't sequester as much uh, um, um, solar energy mm -hmm. into carbon, into biomass, and the organic matter goes down and the, the, the methanotrophic uh, bacteria that should be living under healthy um, vegetation are not healthy to you know to control all the all the different decomposition uh, uh, gases whether they're uh, decaying organic matter uh, decaying from digestion in an animal or whatever it may be and so it's this it's this movement and so on our farm using high-tech electric fencing polyethylene plastic pipe and portable shade mobiles with, uh, you know, a spun, spun polyethylene uh, nursery shade cloth. So we have mobile shelter. The water lines give us mobile water, and the electric fence gives us mobile control. With all three things mobile, we are able to simulate the biomimicry of these migratory choreographies on a on a piece of property and uh, and the result is that where in our area the average um, uh, number of, of cow days that pasture will produce is 80 80 cow days per year in other words an acre of pasture uh, will sustain 80 cows for one day a year or one cow for 80 days a year on our farm we average well over 400 cow days per acre, and we've never used a bag of chemical fertilizer, and we've never planted a seed in 60 years. Wow! So that that that's not bragging. What it is, it's it, it, it's humbly giving credence <laughs> to this amazing uh, um, you know, uh, natural template of of movement and rest and movement and rest. It's um, it's a strange thing where you and I are talking about this topic that seems so natural and so simple. In our work, uh, Joe and I, we teach uh, people how to eat. So we go around the country and we tell them to eat plants and, and meat, really. And uh, every time we go and speak to an audience, it could be anywhere from 100 to 1,000. And uh, 
we we're saying something so simple, but seem it seems so revolutionary. And we and I can see the parallel in the way that you um, talk about farming and mimicking the natural behaviors of the animals in in that way. So, um, how have you found this uh, journey for yourself, going around uh, the the entire world, uh, teaching people about something so simple and so basic? And um, where are you seeing change on on the ground now, as we are seeing in the food movement? that people are going back to this natural way of eating. What's happening around the planet now with regards to farming? Well, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's another great question. And, and, boy, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, uh, obviously, there are, there are more and more people interested in this uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Well, the, the main reason is, is health. Um, farmers, far, farmers are realizing that they're, their land and their livestock and their plants, I mean, their, their basic overall biology is unhealthy, whether it's, you know, poor production, whether it's, uh, high, you know, vet bills, uh, but, but from a, from a, a an overall, um, <clears throat> health, health standpoint, you know, um, many farmers are realizing, hmm, you know, our, our fertility is going down, our water is going mm. down. Our, our immunological function of our animals is going down. Our pests are going up. Our diseases are going up. Blah blah blah. blah. Yes. And in the in the non-farming community, it's also health. People are realizing that. I mean, this is uh, this is now according to most World Health Organizations, what we have coming up now is the first generation that is not expected to live as long as the previous one. That's that's, right. that's the first downturn of life expectancy in you know a couple of centuries and that's a you know that should be a red flag uh and and um we're seeing more and more you know uh, childhood leukemia we're seeing yes. you know diabetes we're seeing uh all sorts of of chronic debilitating diseases um in the population so when people don't feel good you know they they they, they try they try everything that the medical you know the, the medical orthodoxy uh, throws at them, and and they still don't really get a get relief, and they begin looking elsewhere. That's the same thing that's happening with farmers. They go to the far agriculture orthodoxy, and they finally get tired of of trying things that don't really work, that don't really solve their problems. And so this is all you know this this interest this interest in a in a different approach um, on in both you know, groups of people is, I think, being pushed by a frustration, um, an increasing frustration of, of an orthodoxy, an orthodox kind of thinking that doesn't work on many, many fronts. And so, yes, it is, you know, it, it is progressing. Now, what's interesting is, in true Hegelian form, um, while this is progressing, at the same time, the other side is progressing and promising salvation through yes. genetically modified organisms, you know, nanotechnology, um, uh, you know, uh, soilless, you know, hydroponics, uh, basically uh, intravenous, um, you know, plant um, production, uh, and 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 you know, more sophisticated um, technology. And so, you know, that is just more of the, um, the, the mechanical, non-biological approach. Uh, you know, I, I, I still don't see any 
Agriculture University doing a doing a study on pigs, uh, asking how they can make pigs happy. It's, yes. it, it, it's all about how do we grow them faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. The, the focus And, is uh, uh, always on the profits for the next quarter, isn't it? That's that's usually the case with those uh, big agri businesses. Is they're trying yeah. to trying to make the money, and they don't really care about the the health of the soil. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's it's all based uh, as you as you alluded to there on a, a very short term view. You know, how can we how can we get our money turned over quicker? Um, and if it if it depletes the soil, if we if we increase deserts, um, if we produce food that's not very nutritious, but it's uh, but it's plentiful and fills trucks. Um, you know, those are the kinds of kind of short term goals that the current industrial system promotes and um and and you know it, it it works for a while it gives a semblance of um functionality for a little while you know uh, nature is amazingly forgiving fortunately mm. but but in time uh nature bats last and nature's balance sheet will ultimately catch up and you know that that's what we're seeing and and You know, one of the reasons I I love I've been to Australia ten times. I'm coming back in uh, in April, Fantastic. and and um, I, I think a lot of Australians um, don't appreciate how many really big um, worldwide breakthroughs have come out of Australia. You know, permaculture came out of Australia. That's right. Uh, key, key line key line design came out of Australia. Um, more recently, pasture cropping. Pasture cropping has come out of Australia, and I, I think I think one of the reasons that these ma uh, uh, really significant agriculture breakthroughs have come out of Australia is because it is an, a, an extremely fragile. It, it, it's a it, it's one of the most fragile ecosystems right. on the planet, and so things that you know in an area like North America here, where we get lots of rain and You know, it, it's a for at least a lot of the country. Um, it, it's a very forgiving environment, whereas uh, Australia is an austere, is primarily an austere environment, and so things things here that would take a long time to show negative, you know, negative uh, trajectories in Australia, those negative trajectories. Show up very quickly. One of the last times I was um, in uh, South Australia, up north, we was up uh, north of Adelaide, up in there in that wine country, and I was on a farm there, um, a permaculture uh, uh, fruit and nut farm. And the guy had his original not not he wasn't here, of course, but when the when the first land was you know sold and divvied up in I think eighteen twenty or something there. And it was sold um, on the basis of how high is the water table, you know, that you can you can drive a pipe down and, and pump water out of the aquifer. And it varied anywhere from like one meter to three meters. And obviously, the closer to the soil surface the aquifer was, the, the more expensive the land was. Sure. And um, and his was, I think, two meters. And he had this original deed. You know, it was it recorded in the deed. Well, it took them about 30 years to pump through that aquifer. They went into the second one. And make a long story short, today they're in the fourth aquifer down, um, I think it was about 150, it was less than 200 meters. But anyway, 200, 200 meters in the fourth aquifer, 
and it's drying up. Well, what, what, what happens? You know, <laughs> how, how deep do you go and when do these, when do these last? And so, so, um, you know, to realize the, the abundance of, of flora and fauna that Australia had, you know, the, the greatest estate. I think that's one of the one, most wonderful Australian books, the greatest estate. Um, that, that it had before the Europeans came, and I could say the same thing about the Shenandoah Valley here, where, where we live. You know, before the Europeans came, the the, the Native Americans had this this amazing abundance of, of stuff that they that they did with this uh, this uh, you know this movement, this migratory movement of, of the animals, and um, and and we know that it had way way more water. You know, all this and all of these things are being depleted. So. We're on a we're on a trajectory uh, that doesn't end well. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese have a saying that says, "If you keep going the way you're going, you're going to end up where you're headed." <laughs> you're absolutely right, and you you're so right about Australia in terms of its fragility because. Our topsoil isn't really deep, uh, so very quickly we'll start seeing the, the soil eroding if we don't look after it. And this is one of the, the aspects that you bring here to, to this whole picture is this idea that um, not only can the soil be sustainable, but added to the soil can be built using things like uh implementing the correct ways of uh, having the, the animals move around the land. So uh, what have you seen change in polyphase over the years by having the animals on the land? Has the soil degraded or has it gone up? And what does it look like compared to, say, uh, conventional farming methods? Yeah, well, um, that's, that's, what, that's what makes me jump out of bed every morning. <laughs> People ask me, you know, why are you farming? And, and, and my answer is always because every morning... I can step outside the back door into a nest that I have this 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 almost you know this awesome almost mystical uh, 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 privilege mm -hmm. of being able to participate in in the healing of this nest in in, in the, the development of the abundance of this nest. It's not a it's not a place of scarcity. It's a place of abundance. So uh, on our place when we came, of course, it had been. Uh, our house was built in uh, 1790, so this is old country here, and um, and it had been, you know, plowed in grains and and stuff for almost 200 years before we came in 1961, and um, and so anywhere from three to eight feet of topsoil eroded from our hills from wow. the land here before before we arrived in 1961 so there were large areas for example that had no soil at all i mean when i say large areas i mean you know in, in a in a in a 15 acre field uh there would be maybe three uh three quarter acre to half acre spots that were literally uh, rock, no soil, just shale, just just bare rock, no plants, no nothing, just bare rock. In fact, there was so little soil that uh, when my dad started in the early 60s doing this portable electric fencing thing and started moving cows around, there wasn't enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes. And I mean, little you know, little portable stakes. I mean, like we're wow. talking about, you know, all, all we need is all we need is. Um, Whatever you know, uh, thirty thirty centimeters, yeah. <laughs> thirty centimeters. That's all we need. And and so uh, he he took car tires and uh, used used car tires. Got them from a you know like a tire dealer in town. 
brought them home and uh, mixed concrete, poured concrete in them and pushed up two half-inch pipes down inside, one straight up and down and one on an angle. He stacked these uh, concrete tires in on a tractor platform, and my brother and I, we were little kids, but the two of us were able to get on the edge of these things and heave them off as, da- as Dad drove slowly through the field, and then he would go and stick the electric fence stakes in those in those uh, half-inch pipes in the concrete tires, uh, and that's the way we built electric fence. Today, today, None of those areas exist, and they all have almost a, uh, a foot, which I uh, can't do the centimeter conversion fast enough, but anyway, um, it would be uh, whatever, a third a third of a meter. <laughs> I can look be, that up. Uh, 30, yeah, 30, 30 centimeters, you know, 30, 30 35 centimeters. centimeters. That's it. Yeah, One foot is 30.5. 30 centimeters, yeah, um, 35 centimeters of soil on them. Uh, now it's not, you know, it's not, it's not five feet deep like it was 500 years ago, but I'll, I'll take, I'll take 12 inches over no inches, I- any time of day, and uh, and all those areas now, you know, grow grow grass and clover and and uh, they're they're healing, and so to to in my in my short lifetime, to be able to see that level of degradation uh, develop into fertility is uh it, it makes you fall to your knees and weep you know to, to to realize that that all this 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 paranoia and fear about we're running out of everything we're we're overpopulated oh no you know we're we're going to starve to death um actually we we can't even we can't even wrap our heads around the abundance yes. that this nest wants to yes. give us we uh, in agriculture, so often we we view nature as a, as a reluctant partner that we have to, you know, we have to get in a half Nelson and a wrestling match, you yeah, know, to I'm going to make you do, you know, I'm going to wrestle with you, make you do. When actually, you know, when actually nature is a is a benevolent lover, and and the the the, the challenge is to simply learn humbly how to caress this lover, how to how to massage this lover into the abundance that she wants to give to us um, and that's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a very it's a very different it's a very different yeah. profound way you know to think and so on our own farm we've watched this we've watched this abundance you know, i told you we've gone from you know 80 cow day to 400 cow day we've you know we were arguably the you know the, and I'm, I'm and again I'm, I'm not saying this pridefully i'm i'm i'm, I'm giving great uh Whatever credence uh, and 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 all of the honor to this amazing, um, you know, creation's ability to to heal and to forgive and to um, to move back to a place of abundance. And and all we've done is just we say, how does nature work? Well, nature, you know, nature works through um, through perennials primarily. Nature doesn't have very many annuals; they're mainly perennials. And perennials are pruned by uh, megafauna, primarily herb- herbivorous megafauna. That megafauna moves, so you get perennials, megafauna, and movement, and and you start building this this um, this template of biomimicry 
that then guess what it it works yes and and it's evident in the way that the soil is rebuilding but it it kind of defies belief that an area that had nothing but rock on it can now have 30 centimeters of soil where like can you explain to our listeners where did that soil come from like how did it actually accumulate there and what was it about your practices that built that soil on rock oh well that that's one of the most remarkable things about this i i told you that these these areas were like you know were like saucers uh saucers in the field and um and so i want you to imagine that they were like uh you know if you ever skinned your skinned your hand uh and you have this this round kind of round scab round sore on your hand hmm. and how does it heal it heals from the outside in, it doesn't heal from the inside out. It heals from the out. You, you, you start seeing this little ridge around the edge, and and you know every day you see that that little new skin, and it 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 goes in and in, and finally you've got this little itty bitty uh, piece left, and it starts to itch like crazy, <laughs> and you and you probably uh, scratch it off, and guess what? You've got new skin under there, and you're you know you're good to go. That's exactly the way these rock areas healed on our farm uh they, they did not heal from the inside out so every year we would see the the soil on the edge what happens is is you you have this biomass this this perennial perennial you know grass clovers uh, uh um, medics and uh forbs all these different kinds of perennial plants and biennials and everything and they're they're growing and they're growing around this edge and as as they drop leaves, as their root mass, uh, as their root mass uh, sloughs off with the pruning process, again, it's not continuous pruning. It's it's pruning and then rest, pruning and then rest. When you have these edge plants that grow up three feet tall, and then you graze them, there's there's this residual um, organic matter, humus, that's sloughed off from the root material. That, that, that spills over, uh, next door. And, and so what happened is you could just see this over, over the course of 30 years, um, these edges, they, they'd move in maybe, uh, 12 to 13 inches a year. Um, not, not really unlike what would happen if you, if you abandoned a road, for example, and the side ditches, um, if you abandon a road, eventually those side ditches, the grass and the vegetation in those side ditches, would eventually uh, start growing and sprouting and, and 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 grow into the road. Are you are you right? Does that make sense? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so so you you get this um, you get this edge this edge movement effect. And gradually, they just got smaller and smaller. And about I don't know what, maybe 15 years ago, uh, the last ones got down to where you know they were about mm. two or three feet, you know, maybe just one meter. And then finally, they just they just closed right up, just like the scab on your hand, and they're gone. And and now you know I have to now the only way that you can tell where they were is when we have a drought. When we have a drought those areas turn brown earlier and you can still see the circles you can still see those old scabs in a drought because obviously there's not there's not as much soil there so they they tend to dry out faster uh one other little uh interesting tidbit 
when we came to the farm in 1961 and pulled soil samples, our soil averaged 1% organic matter, uh, which organic matter, you know, is a, is a measure of this, this, the biology, the resilience, the humus, the decaying or the decaying biomass that's in the soil. It includes earthworms. It includes, you know, uh, um, actinomycetes, mycelium, fungi, bacteria, all those things. And, um, and it was 1% in 1961. Today, it's more than 8%. And when you realize that one pound of organic matter holds four pounds of water, hmm. you begin to realize the, the exponential, the, the, the I mean, not exponential, but certainly multiplicative value of moving one percentage point of organic matter, you know, you're, you're, you're adding another, you know, 30,000, 30,000 gallons of water storage per acre. Another percentage, you're adding another 30,000 gallons. And, and, and suddenly, you know, your, your, your water, your hydration, your hydration cycle, um, uh, completely, you know, changes simply due to the water holding capacity of the sponge, uh, that you've created in the soil. And so then you start seeing, you start seeing springs, springs re, you know, re, uh, reemerge. Uh, you know, all sorts of neat things happen, um, when you get that cycle you know, moving. So, so to kind of tie up that picture a little bit, we can compare the soil on the earth to skin on our body, yes. and it plays a protective role in the health of the organism. And in this case, it's the, the organism is the land itself. And we're saying that the ruminants are actually playing a big part of the heat in the healing of the land because without them the grasses could be left untended and without the pruning of these grasses the biomass that you talk about just wouldn't be there it wouldn't grow and wouldn't spread around the land and that's, and, that's correct and then there's the added um factor that you just spoke about this aliveness of the soil um and it's quite often not really thought thought about like the fact that the soil is a living organism itself and the healthier um, the organisms within the soil are the healthier the the soil becomes and then it it can for instance form these streams that will attract birds and other wildlife and create biodiversity in a and this whole, whole thing starts from the fact that you actually introduced grazing animals into the land rather than just let it rest without these grazing animals is that fair to say uh, yeah yes in, in fact in fact, um, the grazing animal uh, actually secretes saliva, saliva that acts as a stimulant to the um, to the grass, as, as a fab, as a as a as an emollient, if you will. Wow. Uh, to, to the to the that that's why grazed grass always responds and grows back much quicker than mowed grass, uh, because the mowed grass doesn't have this, all of these microbial salivas mm. that are coming out of the uh, that pruning animal see the, the the problem is that if you if you don't prune if you don't prune the biomass think about it like a like an orchard or a vineyard you know if if a viticulturalist or an orchardist uh, did not prune the apple trees or the grapevines we would consider that orchardist or viticulturalist uh, 
negligent or lazy or, yes. you know, uh, we, we would consider him or her you know, not a very good steward of, of their plants. And the same thing is true with with the grasses, with the bio, with with the um, the grasses, they go through this same uh, cycle as the orchard trees or the or the vineyard, and uh, the pruning um, restarts. It, it restarts their rapid growth. Otherwise, they just go into senescence. I, I call you know, if you envision the S again, just for for fun. I always call the bottom of the S, you know, uh, um, di- diaper stage. You know. Or yes. They start kind of slow, and are they ever going to be out of diapers, right? <laughs> and, and and then the, that 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 middle that fast growth stage I call the teenage teenage years, and then as it rounds out the top, I call that nursing home grass. Okay, and, and so um, so what we want is to maintain the the biomass in that very rapid teenage juvenile stage as much as possible. And that is why the planet is full of herbivores, from from elephants to zebras to reindeer to moose to um, you know kangaroos to alpacas and llamas. I mean, you can go around the planet. Why do we have all these herbivores? They are the pruners of this biomass to keep this this uh, this photosynthetic this vegetative photosynthetic um, cycle going to convert all of this solar energy into uh, into decomposable biomass. Well, you say, well, why do we need grass? Why don't we just use trees? Let, let's just use trees. Well, the pro- trees, yes, trees are, are a help, but trees are not nearly as efficient as grasses because grasses have a much faster metabolic uh, metabolic capacity. So, you know, imagine... imagine uh, you know, two two people. One is prone to weight gain, and one is one of these you know skinny guys that could just eat and eat and eat, and they never can gain any weight. Um, well, that's what grass is like. Grass is like that skinny guy that has this real rapid metabolism. That it grows fast and it dies fast. It grows fast, it dies fast. Whereas a tree is like the more uh, you know husky fella that, uh, that that has a much slower metabolism. Uh, it might be stronger, you know, and it might win the arm wrestling contest, uh, but but it's but it's it's a much slower metabolism, and so actually nature works best when when you have both, and uh, and so that whole you know kind of savanna silvopasture uh, concept is actually very beneficial because trees like fungi. And grass likes bacteria. Yes. And the soil, the soil actually um, has a symbiotic, uh, uh, a symbiotic uh, aspect result when it has both fungi and bacteria. And so when we have when we have an integration of forest edges and, and we have you know uh, 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 trees integrated with the pasture, that's where we get this wonderful soil symbiosis of both fungi and bacteria. What's incredible about talking to you is that we can zoom in to any of these topics and spend maybe a few years talking about it and then find more things to talk about. And uh, it's just talks to the, to the fractal nature of this world that you can zoom in and out of it and just be fascinated by it. But 
I'm looking at our culture now and where we are and the disconnection that we have from the planet. Uh, so on one hand, we have concentrated animal feeding operations. And on the other hand, we have people advocating a move towards veganism or vegetarianism as a solution to the cruelties of these inhumane farming practices. So the people on the right are saying that without kofas, the world will starve and the practices that they use with these uh industrialized methods of farming the animals that they're the most efficient ways of farming and that they're necessary for our survival and then on the left they're suggesting that we in our biology are actually vegetarians and that eating meat is un an unnatural behavior for us and to me it's these two arguments are like two extremes or two two sides to the one coin which is exhibited by this culture that seems to have lost its sanity and connection to the planet but you've dedicated your life to providing clarity around the situation so I'd really like to get your perspective on the culture and where we are now and how we got here and what is the same view that we can take towards animals in this world. Yeah, um, again, what a, what a great thread this is, and thank you for, for moving the, the, the conversation in this direction. I, I would simply start by saying that the, the vegan-vegetarian movement is, is not... Yes, it does have a moral dimension, but generally the moral dimension is one uh, is a, is a backlash against the kind of systems that we that we do to raise domestic livestock, um, where, where we we are so disrespectful. We we are not asking how to make a happy pig. We're simply viewing the pig as a as a as an inanimate pile of protoplasmic structure to be manipulated however cleverly the human uh, mind can imagine to manipulate it. And that's, that's a very a disrespectful, dishonoring uh, a, a way to view life. And so, so the, the, the backlash, uh, as that pendulum has swung toward the, the CAFO and the, and the mechanical view of life, uh, you, you have this, this backlash of of, uh, well, and I'm not going to eat any meat at all. We shouldn't eat any animals. And, and the way they're raised, they, they are hurt hard on the atmosphere, on the planet. And, and see, I agree with all of that. But the answer is not to, um, extricate animals from your life or meat from your diet. The answer is to find the animal, the meat, the plant, the, the egg, the chicken, the whatever, uh, to find what is actually um, ecologically enhancing, uh, that's, that's the one to find. And so, um, so the, the, the move toward, um, uh, to, to an animalless diet, an animalless system does not indicate a new evolution into some new, uh, awareness, a nirvana of, of, uh, awareness and, and morality. It actually indicates a devolution into a profound disconnection with the cycles of life, mm. which involve death. And, and whether it's a, you know, it, it just take a compost pile. Um, I don't know any vegan that would be opposed to having a compost pile. And yet the whole essence, the foundation of a compost pile is that things are eat, eating and being eaten. Uh, every one of the one of the most profound uh, principles of life is that in order for there to be life, uh, something has to die. Something has to make a sacrifice mm. in order for life to exist. 
and that happens in a compost pile. It happens, I mean, goodness, I, I say, if you don't believe everything's eating and being eaten, go lie naked in your flower bed for three days and see what gets eaten. Uh, you know, it, it, it will, it will, um, it will arrest your senses, all right? And, and so there's, there's nothing wrong with death, uh, with the, de- you know, the, the whole, um, life, death, decomposition, regeneration, life, death, decomposition, regeneration. Imagine that as a big circle. Uh, life at the top, then death, then decomposition, then regeneration. And just imagine that circle going. Uh, yes. that, that is, that is one of the most foundational ecological, uh, uh, uh building blocks that that you can imagine and so the question is how do we make the life sacred how do we make the life and the subsequent death how do we make that a sacred thing a a, a noble thing and how we do it is by respecting the life during the life so that that so that that sacrifice whether it's the death of a carrot which we know is a sentient thing um, or the death of a cow, which of course is a sentient thing. Um, the fact is that nature is pulsing with sentience. I mean, trees are responding to pheromones. Plant cells, the 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 the, the phenoxyls, you know, that that, that are emitting. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that in, in the Serengeti, you know, the the um, uh, the, the trees um, emit a pheromone that that when the when the giraffe eats the leaves. Um, the pheromone moves on the wind to um, to make for for the for the trees downwind to become bitter, so that the giraffe won't want to eat them as much. Uh, if that's not sentience, I don't know what is. And, and and so the fact is that that nature, that life around us, is pulsing and throbbing with sentience, with understanding, with 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 response response spontaneity to management and, and to stimuli and to things. And, and part of our awareness, I think, as humans, uh, part, part of our, our responsibility, because, because we can be so destructive or so redemptive either way, um, is to live with a very close, um, um, almost meditative appreciation of this pulsing sentience that's around us. Uh, I, I, I'd simply use a, a simple little story. You know, um, uh, when I'm speaking to a group, I, I say, does, does anybody here think that the stock market is more important than the health of actinomycetes, mycorrhizae, and earthworms? Anybody. You know, well, nobody, ra- you know, nobody raises their hands. They all know that, that life is more important than, well, than the stock market. Yes. And, and and yet and yet has anybody ever heard of somebody going into a banker with a business plan, and the banker says, "Wow, this is this is a fantastic business plan. In fact, it's so good, I want to be your partner." Before but before before we loan you any money for this business, I have one question: What's this business going to do to the actinomycetes, the mycorrhizae, <laughs> and the earthworms in our community? You know. <laughs> <laughs> the reason we laugh is because nobody would no ever ask that. Ever. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and yet, and yet, in the quietness of the moment, we all know, mentally, spiritually, physically, we all know 
at the health of this pulsing life around us, under our feet, in the soil, in, in the refrigerator that we're getting ready to eat, all of us knows, all of us know that that life is more important than the stock market. Absolutely, and this is the thing about it being a human being in the so-called civilized world is that we don't actually get those moments of silence and uh, stillness in which we can reflect about our relationship with the living planet where we sit in it and how our actions affect it like the um, Native Americans would think about their actions seven generations down the track and uh, speaking of that life cycle that you spoke about we've seen uh, ancient symbols from our ancestors for instance the snake eating its own tail is one of those really ancient symbols that showed how we yeah. acknowledge the fact that we understood that life ate life and that life and death were necessary for the ongoing for life to continue and um we just we just seem to be so completely off track these days with the way that we are moving forward with the world and this disconnection is just continuing and um, what is the way back? And that's, I think, a really broad question. I, I don't expect that you'll be able to give us a very uh, accurate way of um, being like how this ship can be steered, but there's um, there seems to be a lot of hope say, in government changing policies or things like that. But when I look at health and food in particular, I see that the answer lies in again in grass so in grassroots movements so people taking uh, their own health into their own hands and making the better decisions but uh, when it comes to farming how do we encourage these types of uh, farming methods and where, where do we move forward how do we do it as uh, individuals who live in suburban houses and um, what's our role to play uh, yes, well, I, <laughs> I, that's a very common question. You know, I, I live in the city, so what can I do? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's the kind of the cut to the chase. What, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of have a three-part answer to that that's very, very practical. Um, the, the first one is to, um, to, to, to get in your kitchen and, uh, and, and enjoy, enjoy uh, culinary arts. And I'm not talking about... Um, you know, hoop skirts and hearth cooking and bringing water from, you know, the creek in a wooden bucket. Uh, today we have all the techno gadgetry you can imagine in our kitchens. We have ice cream makers and bread makers and, and hot and cold water on demand. We have, you know, stoves that on the flick of a button, you don't have to get up at 4 a.m. And, and put wood in a stove so you can cook <laughs> eggs at 6, you know. Uh, I mean, we have refrigerators. We, we have all this, uh, you know, we, we have, we have slow cookers and, and time to bake. And, um, the point is that, um, that you, you cannot have integrity in, in a food system, which, which ultimately means integrity in a farming system. So, so, you know, the, the a farming system is completely tied to the kind of food system. Change the food system, you change the farm system. And so, so uh, you cannot have integrity in the food system when you have such a profound abdication of visceral participation in the system. So, so the, the way back, uh, in my view, starts with finding your way into the kitchen again and, and beginning 
working with food, smelling food, touching food, uh, uh, um, developing mastery and skill in, in, in handling food, all right? And, uh, yes, it might mean you have to um, uh, not, not do something else. Uh, you know, take the kids three hours to a soccer tournament or something. But, but at the end of the day, if we don't, if we don't return to home centricity in our food system, we will, it, it, we will not have any integrity all the way down to the farm. So number one, get in your kitchen. Number two is do something yourself. Uh, I don't care whether it's a, a, a honeybee hive on the roof, a hanging, uh, pot garden on the patio. I don't mean pot, I mean pot like, uh, <laughs> you know, flower pots. Okay. Yeah, uh, 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 you know, hanging, hanging, uh, things. The, 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 the urban, the urban garden, the, the edible urban landscape garden now, uh, is, is just the, the, the infrastructure, the, the techno infrastructure for this stuff. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got, uh, uh, PVC tubes with pockets in them, you know, you pack it full of compost, drip some water, and you can grow all of your own, all your herbs in a little hanging tube that just hangs on the edge of your porch. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's all this stuff. Uh, so, so do something, even if it's just, um, you know, uh, an earthworm bed kit under your kitchen sink. They come in little, they're about the size of a, uh, of two rugby balls. Okay. I've got to use rugby instead of football for Australia. But, um, <laughs> They're very small. They fit under your kitchen, and and the marvel of turning your kitchen scraps into uh, earthworm castings and watching the red wigglers, and you can use it for your plants, whatever. Uh, just the, in, just let yourself be touched with the mystery, the awesomeness of this of this uh, biological um, uh, you know womb we live in. And number three, so first was get in your kitchen. Number two, do something. To participate in this, in this, in the womb, and then number three is to um, to find your food treasures in your community. Now, it might be a farmers market, it might be a it might be a box scheme, a delivery service, it might be a farm stand. Uh, you know, it, 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 there are numerous things that this um, uh, takes on, but. Um, you know, uh, just going down to Woolies and uh, what's the other one in, uh, there, there's two of them in uh, Australia, two of the big supermarkets. Um, Coles and anyway, Woolies, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, the, the, the idea is, um, I, always, I always challenge people, whatever you're spending on entertainment and, um, and, and relax, just entertainment for the year, uh, the time and money you would do it take one year, take one year and invest that energy that you would have normally invested in entertainment for one year, invest that in your, in your area finding integrity sources of food from farmers that are building soil, farmers that are honoring the pigness of the pig and, and, and build your, build your local, uh, uh, food, uh, trust. Um, one of the best little pamphlets I ever picked up was in Australia. I, I don't remember where it was, but it was a it was a directory of what they called um, they they said we're we're food fossickers fossickers. You know that was the name of the the gold rush folks. You know that were yes. looking for you know, looking for gold. And 
I've never heard the word before. We don't we don't use the word here in America, but uh, when it was explained to me, I thought, what a wonderful word! So I've now used it in America to introduce people to the Australian idea of a food treasure, the whole idea of food treasure. Find mm. your food treasure, become a food fossicker uh, in your area. And and the nice thing is today we have we have so many options. There's there's so much of this. So so um, you know the the fact is. Where we are right now, whatever your um, disapproval is, uh, name name the name the issue, name the food issue, the farming issue, the environmental issue that you don't like, whatever it is, it is a manifestation of the of the decisions, the values, and the priorities that we have had for however many years leading up to today. What our landscape and what our food system, our foodscape will look like for our grandchildren will be, again, a physical manifestation of the values, decisions, and, and priorities that we have between now and then. I wish that I could snap my fingers and nobody would have to do anything differently and all of the trajectories would change. But we all know if we want a different outcome, we have to do a different procedure. What the, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. Absolutely. And so if we want a different result, we have to start doing something differently. And so these, these three action steps, uh, get in your kitchen, do something for yourself, and find your food treasures in your community. Those three things are actionable steps that anybody can do. You can start at zero and do one. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Take it in little baby steps. But as you develop skill and and it start immersing yourself in a different trajectory, you will gradually begin to write a different story for our grandchildren. And isn't that something worth doing? Absolutely. And it's a very different way of dealing with things rather than just doing it for yourself, just considering the future generations. And that will give you that view of sustainability and improving the health of the planet that we're destroying so much. Hey, Joel, uh, I didn't ask you before the podcast how much time you have. So uh, how are we doing for time? Uh, I'm okay. Okay, fantastic. So I've, like, I'm really enjoying this chat and there's so much I want to talk to you about because you have such a holistic view of this. You live it. So it's not just a scientific view, but it's also seems to be a spiritual uh, part of your life as well. And there's so much I want to cover. Um, one thing that I remember hearing you talk about, I think it was in the, um, the talk you did at Google was, and it ties into that thing that you mentioned earlier about the entertainment budget. But I really loved the way that you put it because it was so strong and it just really clarified to people, you know, where they can make changes in their life. When someone asked you about affordability of eating locally and from your farmers markets, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, just how people can afford these things that seem to be more expensive than, say, TV dinners or microwave meals? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, the, the the best way to bring affordability is to buy unprocessed. Uh, look, we live it. We live in a time of convenience. You know that. I know that. Uh, I mean, the, our biggest struggle as a farm that direct markets to you know to directly to consumers is um, 
is this this tension of wanting uh, wanting integrity food, but wanting it to be convenient. And so um, the, the the number one thing that you can do to drop the price of your groceries is to buy unprocessed food, and then you know use your kitchen to to marinate them, cook them, stir them, fry them, <laughs> whatever mm. you're going to do. Uh, you know, get out your kitchen knife and a cutting board and, 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 and use that. Right now, right now today as we speak, um, here at, at Polyface Farms in Virginia, we have, you know, we think it's the, you know, the best chicken in the world, grass uh, pastured chicken. Um, our, our whole chicken, if you buy a whole chicken from us, it is less per pound than a boneless, skinless breast at the at, at right. Walmart or at, at the supermarket from the industry, and and so um, that that boneless, skinless breast you're paying for the convenience of somebody else did all the all the work and all the skinning and all the boning and all that stuff, and you're just getting uh, one little type of muscle, one little tiny type of of, of, of product. Because you get a whole chicken, you get brown meat, white meat, you get thighs, you get drumsticks, you get the, you get broth, you get all this cool stuff, and it's cheaper. Our chicken, world class, you know, uh, Michelin rated, served in the best restaurants in the world, mm. is cheaper per pound than an industrial, conventional supermarket boneless, skinless breast. That's what I'm talking about. And so, if you take all of those convenience, the the heat and eat meals, the microwavables, the the, the the canned the, um, the the frozen you know uh, frozen pizzas all those different convenience things um, you will find that they are extremely expensive even at the industrial level I have a friend who routinely takes a candy bar uh, to farmers market with him he sells lamb at the farmers market and when people complain about his whatever it is fifteen dollars a pound for for his lamb he just reaches in his pocket and pulls out that candy bar and says, this is $22 a pound. Wow. That's absolutely and, and right. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, so that, that's, that's the first point, you know, buy it unprocessed. The se- second thing is that, um, we, we do, we have come to this point where we expect cheap food and we buy, um, expensive entertainment, we buy expensive clothes, we buy expensive cars, but somehow we're supposed to get really integrity food very, very cheaply. And, um, and, and I'm a big believer in you, you get what you pay for. And so, uh, if you, if you want integrity, you know, nutrient dense food, um, you, you pay for it, but you actually get a lot more. For example, for example, let's take uh, beef. For example, that where they use so many times they use ionophore, uh, you know, a, a basically an ionophore um, implant. Well, that doesn't increase nutrition. It simply makes the cells swell and take on water. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what you're paying for in the supermarket, you're paying for uh, water volume. You're not actually paying for nutrition. Yeah, you're paying for weight, but it's not actually nutrition. And the same is true, for example, in uh, hydroponic vegetables, for example. There's, there's, um, uh, what is it? There's 30 
think it's 30% or maybe 50%, there's way more water in a hydroponic tomato than a tomato grown in the soil. And, and so when you buy that hydroponic tomato, you're, you're buying a lot of water rather than actual nutrition. And, and so, uh, so there's that aspect as well. And then, you know, are there things, are there things that we're spending money on that we don't need to? I suggest that, you know, uh, tobacco, maybe we don't need as much alcohol. Uh, do you really need, you know, uh, People magazine with Kardashians on the cover or, or you know, whatever is popular there in, in, uh, in uh, Australia? Um, oh, they're popular you know, here too. <laughs> they, they, they've painted the world with their, um, dis, with their dysfunctionality. Um, but, but, but think of all the things that we spend money on uh, from holiday to whatever. And I'm not saying you never take a holiday. But what I am suggesting is if we're really serious, if we're really serious about the planet, about our health, about nutrition, about animal welfare, if we're really serious about it, we can probably do with... You know, it, all we have to do is take a, is, is take a, uh, a 10 day holiday instead of a 12 day holiday. And those two days will pay for all the extra price of food for an entire year. Is that worth mm. doing to change, to alter the trajectory to where we're building soil, hydrating the landscape, uh, uh, putting the carbon in the soil? pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere, respecting the animals, creating a moral dimension for our, for our ethical framework for how we live as a culture. I mean, is, is it worth that? And I would suggest, yes, it is worth that. Um, in America, in America, uh, 40 years ago, we spent on per capita, average per capita was, um, was 18% of per capita income was spent on food and 9% was spent on health care. Today, we spend 9% on food and 18% on health care. Is it possible that those two numbers uh, have a, a cause and effect relationship? Mm. I would suggest that it probably is. Absolutely. And the, they go down the same track, food and medicine anyway. They all go through the mouth and it seems that... Uh, the lower the quality of the food that we're, we're taking in, the more medication that we need. And the medication isn't even solving the problems. It, uh, it's, the symptoms are what we're dealing with with these medications. And, and that brings me sort of to, to another point with regards to our ability to choose what goes down our, our, in, in our digestive tract. Because um, when we start taking responsibility for our own health, we start realizing how our sovereignty is constricted, that our ability to make decisions on behalf of our bodies are impaired by laws and regulation. And um, what role does freedom and sovereignty have around food and farming? And um, I know that you speak a lot about this, and um, I've heard talks that you've done a few years ago around this topic, and I'm just wondering what changes you've seen in terms of um, food sovereignty and farming, the ability for you to farm and sell whatever it is that you like to farm and sell. Um, yeah, generally, generally, I think this pendulum has not started to correct itself yet. Mm. I think I think that it's still getting uh, certainly here in America, it's getting worse. Uh, now there is definitely some some backlash. I mean, Australia has the um, the uh, uh, legal defense fund there in Australia now to help farmers that are being harassed by uh, regulations. 
And in America, we have the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Uh, same same deal. They're, they're, they're sisters, basically. They're modeled after uh, the Australian one was modeled after the one here in the U.S. Uh, ours we've had for, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, but... Uh, you know the you know in Australia I know that a hot topic there of course is is raw milk, yes. uh, and and that's a hot topic here in the U.S. as well. Mm-hmm. I was just exact, actually today uh, I was down in Richmond, our state capital, um, uh, speaking to the Senate, the senators um, on a on a uh, herd share uh, raw milk bill, um, and and um, you know this this. This idea that, that one of the most intimate freedoms, uh, or basic, I would say, uh, fundamental freedoms that we can enjoy as humans is the, is the ability to choose the fuel for our internal microbiome. Uh, we have three trillion, three trillion with a T, not a B, but a, tri- a T, trillion, uh, bacteria in our you know, in our uh, inside yeah, um, digestive tracts uh, and mouths. Yeah, in our digest- right. yes, yeah. yes. In, in fact, um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology (MIT) says that we're actually only fifteen percent human. Um, we're we're eighty five percent non human, and, um, and and so this is this is an amazingly intricate and complex community of beings, and. And uh, who's responsible for them? Your neighbor, the government, the the medical association, the dietetics association, and, and and there are certainly people who don't want to be responsible for their internal microbiome, but there are others of us who don't who don't believe that the current orthodoxy of the day is um, is, is helpful. Uh, I mean, how else can you explain the fact that we can we can feed our kids Velveeta cheese? And uh, and Coca Cola and Diet Pepsi, uh, but raw milk is a you know a, a banned substance. Um, and so what what you come to is you begin to realize that food safety is a very subjective thing. Um, you know I, I think that most of the stuff that's at the supermarket is not safe, uh, but but. I'm not going to go down and lobby to try to get a law to make it illegal to sell that stuff. Uh, it's your body, it's your deal, and it's your microbiome, it's not mine, and if you want to kill it, we'll kill it. But, but leave me alone and let me make those choices for my microbiome. And if I want to feed my microbiome compost-grown tomatoes and, uh, and um, uh, raw milk and uh, backyard, backyard uh, um, slaughtered chickens and homemade charcuterie and pepperoni... That ought to be my prerogative. It's and, uh, getting worse here for us, Joel, because not only is it there with the food, like recently there's a call in the government to uh, stop access for natural remedies. So, for instance, they're, they're saying that herbalists shouldn't be able to prescribe traditional remedies, say like white willow bark or something like that, because they don't have any scientific evidence that they work. These are things that we've been using for thousands of years. And and it seems that once we've allowed the government to make a choice for us about what we can and can't put in our mouth, that it's going to go down this slippery slope and our personal freedoms are going to be endangered around this topic. And it's just a scary thing for me to think that I won't be able to go and buy a herb 
that is super important for my health. And instead, I'm going to have to buy this isolated medicine that's going to do more damage to my body than good as well, which is just a, a scary way that the world's heading. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it sure is. And, and you know, um, if, I may, if I may push that envelope just a little bit farther in case you have some, you know, some listeners that, that are, well, that think that the, the government is the best arbiter of decisions, um, let me just say that we, we live in a day of choice. I mean, we're, uh, we can now choose what sex we want to be. We can choose yes. whether we, uh, what, what kind of marriage we want. We can choose what kind of education we want. In most open societies, we, we can choose the, the vocation we want to pursue. Uh, we can choose how many children to have. We, we, we live in a, in a time of, of unprecedented, uh, choice. And, and, and yet, and yet we see in the food and wellness, the food and wellness sphere, we see this choice being uh, uh, stigmatized or marginalized or, or even demonized and criminalized uh, all, all because, because choice is a very subjective thing. Why does why do two people fall in love? Why do, you know, why do you pick the vocation you pick? Why do you like the movies you like or read the books that you like or like the, the entertainment or the sports that you like or the, re, the literature that you like? These are all very, very subjective things. And, and, and in fact, um, how our body responds. I mean, uh, one person really does very well on a heavy, a heavy meat diet, another, another body type or blood type. Uh, doesn't do very well with very heavy meat, just occasional meat and mainly, uh, you know, vegetables. Another one really thrives on, on fruit. Uh, another one is, is, uh, thrives on, you know, on, on, uh, gluten and another one gets allergic to gluten. And, and these are all extremely nuanced. And so, um, so as, as, as consenting adults, as, as consenting adults, as voluntary consenting adults and, and, uh, um, Look, if I if I can't if I can't own my own body, then what can I own? To to say to say that I can't even make the choice to um, to to what to to feed my own body the fuel that I think it needs to have to be energetic enough to um to 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 speak or to write or to run or to uh recreate uh what is the what is the benefit of a society bestowing the freedom to do those kinds of things if we don't have the freedom to choose what to eat or ingest or or medicate ourselves with uh so that we are well enough to go enjoy running or playing or That's talking right. or singing or, or any of those kinds of other you know freedoms that we generally uh enjoy and 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 so that that uh basic choice uh is the ultimate to determining to to where you and I are able to become stewards Stewards of our own internal biological community, our, our own life, and it, it, that, that's so fundamental to human, uh, to the human existence, and to human uh, to, to responsibility, to accountability. 
that to to take away that right and say no you don't have the right to choose how to treat yourself how to feed yourself um, that that is that is a profound uh, I would suggest it's a profound tyranny that that sucks that sucks the human the human um, uh, affirmation ability of our own Tomness, merriness, you know, yes. uh, 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 that sucks that away and simply makes us uh, automatons of some um, state-run orthodoxy. And I can assure you that 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 the state-run orthodoxy uh, has a pretty terrible track record on its own. Uh, I mean, here, I mean, I can I can use our own country. We, you know, for for decades, we the the the, the orthodoxy was. Uh, to substitute butter and margarine with, um, you know, hy- hydrogenated vegetable oil. Yes. And that yeah. was the, that was the orthodoxy. And now suddenly it's fallen out of favor. You know, we had a we had about a seven year run with antimicrobial soap, and now it's basically been outlawed because we realize that antimicrobial soap um, so sterilizes your your skin that it opens it up for infection. Uh, well, amazing, and, and so what we what what we find is that that the the orthodoxy now you know it's genetically modified organisms, and now we're moving into you know nanotechnology, and we're supposed to all just say yes, I would love to have nanotechnology capsules running through my veins and arteries. Uh, that would just be wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, and but, but but see, this is the orthodoxy. That's right. And so so. So I'll, cl- I'll close with this. I would suggest this. I think that the way a culture uh, views its, its what I'll call its, its innovative lunatic fringe, because you know the the unorthodox by definition are unorthodox, and they're they're the lunatics, they're the weirdos, they're the you know the, this this edge periphery, okay? And but but that's where innovation comes from. That's where that's where uh, trials and and, and new ideas. Germinate is out here on these on this this edge, this lunatic fringe, and and so a society that views the lunatic fringe as a as an enemy, as a, as a threat, as a threat to the uh, to the functionality of a of a of a culture is shutting down diversity, innovation, and and experimentation of of new ideas. And shutting itself off from the from the cures, from the real solution of today's problems, and 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 what separates a a tyranny from a liberty-based culture is how the majority, the orthodoxy, how it views, how open it is to allowing a a lunatic fringe to to percolate and to. Uh, to have to, to, to be a healthy fringe on its society. I've heard it said that, that a society that views its lunatic fringe fearfully is a society that is in decline. Mm. Uh, you know, virile, vibrant, uh, you know, strong societies. Ah, cares about those weirdos over there. Let them go drink their raw milk. Let them go, you know, eat their herbs and you know smoke their incense whatever it 
that doesn't hurt anybody. You know, that's fine. It's only when societies become timid and vapid and paranoid and fearful and anemic that they begin fearing as a threat people who don't adhere to the orthodoxy. Joel, I had so many questions around things like um, scarcity, abundance, um, practical stuff that people are asking about how they, how they start farming and things like that. But I'm very conscious of time and I just want to close on a question that's very different to that because what I, what I really love about you really is, is the spirit that you bring here. And, and you spoke earlier of the earth as our lover and it's such a beautiful spiritual view of our relationship to the living world. I would really love to get an understanding or if you could elaborate on your inner relationship with, with the land rather than just the way that you act with it, but just how you feel. What, what are, what's the inner world and the inner connection? Oh, well, uh, um, for sure. I, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that, that I, don't, I don't own it. I mean, yeah, the, the courthouse has a deed down there and it says I own it. But ultimately, I'm simply a pilgrim. I'm simply a, a, a temporary steward uh, passing through something that's bigger than me, that's been here before me, that will probably be here after me. And, and so the question is, what, can I, what, legacy, what legacy can I bring to the footsteps on this, on this sacred place, on this land? Um, and, and so... My my connection and and I, I can get pretty emotional about this. If you've read what I've written, you know that that uh, sometimes when when I leave the farm, I'm I'm in tears. I mean, just because I'm so tuned in and anchored, anchored, and you know I I I can't change the land that you're on. I can't change the land somebody else is on. But but here, I just feel very uh, 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 powerfully that God has entrusted me to. To um, uh, to a a divine peace, if you will, and mm-hmm. and to entrust me um, with stewarding something this this ancient and futuristic at the same time is uh, is almost overwhelming at times, and so it, it doesn't make me fearful. What it makes me is ultimately uh, uh, seeking. Uh, I'm on this journey. And so I'm, I'm seeking, how can I steward better? How can I, how can I, uh, uh, treat the land better? How can I see, uh, how can I tease abundance in all its dimensions so that, um, so that when I leave, uh, it, it, it's equity, all of the equity, the, the wildlife, the biomass, the organic matter, the water, the soil, the, the, all the equity here, uh, is actually higher than when I started, you know, that, that is, a, that is a wonderful way, I think, to view, um, this, 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 this womb, this womb that surrounds us. And if we view it in that respect, we almost develop a, a childlike, uh, you know, a, a childlike, um, interest, interest in, in, in participatory, uh, visceral, healing functionality and, and and progress and um it's a it's just it's just a wonderful way hmm. to view not only a vocation but 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 an avocation i mean this is not just uh what i do it's what i love and uh and, and so being able to combine 
to combine what I what I um, what I do with what I love with something that that has a transcendence way beyond me uh, is is um, well it it helps to keep me um, I think in my in my right frame of reference uh, to to not get too uppity <laughs> and, th and, that, and that's a good thing too mm. um, Joel you, you're the author of what I've counted to be 13 books is that the right count so far? Yeah, that's, that's correct uh -huh. and um, can you tell people where to find you and maybe what's the good book to start if they want to get started in the garden uh, well probably the broadest the broadest title would be uh, folks this ain't normal you alluded to that uh, at, at the top um, that's also available on audiobook um, and and that's a that's a broader cultural book but it but it ties a lot of things together I think to, to help uh, people uh, appreciate the you know appreciate some of the the dots that are out there you know and uh, so that's the one I would recommend okay. first and then And then, uh, you know, for farmers, of course, there's You Can Farm. My latest one is um, Your Successful Farm Business. And um, that's kind of a, uh, you know, the latest, uh, what, I've, what I've found. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of titles there. I mean, my, my, my soul, I call it my soul book, is The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. <laughs> and uh, that, that's the one that I recommend you. When people say, oh, come on, come on, farming is farming. How can it be that much different? Uh, that's the book I recommend because that one, um, that one really digs into into the soul of uh, of of how we how we view this stewardship, what we you know our, our whole value system. And I mean, there's chapters like you know crooked fences. I mean, most people they're always wanting to make straight fences, but the land doesn't lie straight. It lies it lies um, topographically. And so here at our farm, all of our fences are crooked because the landscape <laughs> is crooked. And, and a whole chapter goes into goes into why we want crooked fences and not straight fences. <laughs> so you know, I've all uh, so you know, I, I've been called this this lunatic farmer, you know, because everything we do is so crazy. And so you can either be you know angry at it and and depressed, or I decided. Let's have fun with it. Sure, I'm a lunatic. That's fine. Let's, let's talk about the ecstasy of being a lunatic. Guess what? We don't, we don't have vet bills. We don't have sick animals. We have, you know, growing soil, not eroding soil. I mean, that's, there's ecstasy in being that kind of a lunatic. And Absolutely. so we, we just use it for fun and enjoy the humor of it rather than, you know, being, uh, going having a pity party because people think we're crazy. Joel, uh, you are an inspiration. Um one big thing that I took from you is that if something's worth doing, it's uh, worth doing poorly in the beginning and then doing yeah. it, get, getting better at it. And that's one thing that I'm doing in my, in my current property. I'm, uh, I'm a really bad farmer at the, at this point. And, um, you're inspiring me to continue to be bad until I become good. And you're inspiring the entire world to take action with, uh, getting reconnected to the land and their farmers and doing things at home that from cooking to growing their own food, and you're such an inspiration to us and to the rest of the world and it's wonderful to have someone who brings such clarity and passion to the topic 
Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. I could have gone for another couple of days with you on, on this interview. And hopefully, we, if uh, you don't mind, one day we can have you back again, maybe to talk about more of the practical aspects of farming. Um, but really appreciate having you on today and for taking uh, time from your busy schedule to be with us. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.